I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, it feels like some time since I've been able to preach to you, and so I look forward to be able to do that again uh, this evening, or this morning and this evening. Um, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, we're going to jump back into our study, and our sermon this morning will be a bit shorter than normal so that we can uh, partake in the Lord's table as well. But that's fine because the text that we're going to be looking at uh, functions a little bit like a narrative. There's uh, some illustrations that Paul gives uh, so that we can easily understand the point that he's made. Uh, so we will work through those together, and then we'll partake in uh, the Lord's table together. Uh, two weeks ago now, we started into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And uh, when we start into this chapter, we start into the place where Paul specifically answers some of the Corinthians' questions uh, that they had posed to him about spiritual gifts. The Corinthians wondered things like whether tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, was a guaranteed mark of high spirituality. And so Paul begins to answer that. In Paul's response, he not only knocks tongues down a few rungs, uh, he also takes the time to emphasize what I called two weeks ago three guiding values for the Corinthian assembly in their worship. Sometimes, as a minister of the gospel, I'm asked uh, for help by some churches who are wrestling or struggling through particular dif difficult situations. Um, it may be that uh, someone from a pulpit committee reaches out to me or some leadership uh, in a church. And uh, I remember not too long ago actually hearing from some church leadership where they were asking me for some guidance, uh, and so I asked them to explain what was going on. Well, that's when the leaders began to tell me that uh, this church had, over the course of the last several years, uh, managed to remove the senior pastor from his position. They not only removed the senior pastor, they also uh, got rid of the uh, associate pastor who had been there for scores of years, and the youth pastor. Not only did they remove these pastors for non-biblical reasons, uh, I then found out that all of the deacon fellowship, over the course of removing these three men from their ministries, every person on the deacon fellowship resigned and left the church. That's when they explained to me other issues that the church was having. I mean, who was left there in the assembly? There were many wars in the church, especially some uh, war that they were having about worship and what sort of songs they should be singing and how they wanted the church experience to feel, and so on. Well, things were so overwhelming when I heard them describe these things, and so much work needed to be done, I just tried to emphasize two or three large initiatives or guiding concepts that might help this church take some of its uh, good first steps. I think that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, when he gives these three guiding values. From what we're going to look at in the, the, the rest of chapter 14, it appears to me that when the Corinthians gathered for their worship services, that it was chaos. They were really messed up. Instead of gathering to worship God and building others, the Corinthians were self-centered in their worship. Instead of one person standing up or leading the assemblies through some truth of God's word, 
the Corinthian church was more like a talent competition where each person attempted uh, to impress others with their gifts. Yet it wasn't even a well-organized talent competition uh, because in their assembly, multiple members would be vying for the attention of the whole church at the same time. Most notably, one of the things you'll see in chapter 14 is that both men and women were uttering long strings of indistinguishable groans and babble at the same time claiming to be led by the Spirit of God. Imagine this morning if instead of preaching, I invited six or seven people up here to join me on the platform. I gave them all a microphone, and I asked them all to lead the next 20 minutes of this service in a different language at the same time. French, German, you know. How would you feel about a service like that? How would you approach it? Well, you might be confused. You probably would grow uncomfortable. You might leave here, if you're a guest, you might leave here and say, those people are insane. They're crazy. What what was that? Probably wouldn't gain much of value from it unless you understand one of the languages. And even if you could understand one or parts of one of the languages, the constant infusion of multiple languages would give you a headache. You see, the Corinthian believers were disorderly in their worship service. And to make matters worse, the Corinthians not only had self-centeredness and communication problems in their assembly, they also had authority struggles, authority issues. That's why at the end of the chapter, there's this lengthy discussion of the silence of women. Just a few weeks, actually next Sunday night, I plan on trying to deal with that text, the silence of women and what's going on Uh, In this assembly, it seems that some women were casting off restraint and harshly judging the gifts or the lack thereof of their men in the assembly. So much so that their husbands or their fathers were being culturally shamed because of it. Ask questions like, well, what kind of prophecy was that? Or that doesn't sound very reliable. I mean, we've all been in positions, right, where spouses were not getting along with each other in a public setting, and it became a little bit uncomfortable. Well, that's a worship service in Corinth. So Paul addresses these significant issues with these three guiding values or principles. I think these values can still inform us today. Uh, The first guiding value that I began two weeks ago was uh, the concept of edification. Edification. Uh, Paul specifically mentions this theme and establishes this strong emphasis in verses 1 through 13. Um, You'll see the theme of edification all throughout here, and and a few weeks ago I showed you this, but look at verse 3 in your Bibles. It says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. That's the word for edification, the building up. And encouragement and consolation, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. You see there's several times, just in these first few verses, the words build up. You can see them again in verse 12 and verse 17 and verse 26 later on. 
This theme of edification is very strong in the first few verses. Uh, It doesn't drop off the scene. It's still there. But Paul uses the guiding value of edification to get to some other values uh, throughout the chapter as well. So uh, two weeks ago, in particular, Paul argued that they should prefer prophecy, spiritual gift of prophecy, over tongues because prophecy had greater potential to edify or build others, whereas tongues would only build yourself. So today what I'd like to do is I'd like to look with you at verses 6 through 13 and just take a quick pass through this as a communion address uh, to us. Uh, And so let's look at verse 6 in our Bibles. It says, now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, that means no one can understand it, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. In this paragraph, Paul uh, arranges his material along three different parts. There are three parts to the paragraph, and they'll be my three points this morning. Uh, First, in verse 6, Paul starts with a leading question. A leading question in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So Paul begins here by asking the Corinthian assembly to imagine something. To imagine that the next time that he came to Corinth, imagine if he only spoke in tongues that they did not understand. How effective would that visit be for the Apostle Paul? Uh, Here Paul uses, I think, a, a tremendous rhetorical strategy. He asks the Corinthians to imagine something. Matter of fact, this is one of my favorite types of illustrations. I always tell preachers, if you can't find a good illustration that matches what the text is saying, ask the congregation to imagine something. And when you, when you cross that line, you say, well, imagine if we went into a village and we, you know, you can, you can make the illustration do whatever you want at that point to fit the sermon, to fit the point of the text. And so Paul, in this this passage, he says, I just want you to use your imagination, Corinthians, that the next time I come to you, I give you tongues, but that's all I do for you. I just keep speaking in languages that you do not even understand. This is uh, the the guiding question uh, that he he gives them here. In this imaginary scenario, in this imagined scenario, Paul asked how he would be of any benefit to the Corinthians if he came back to them speaking in a way that they did not understand. The way Paul makes this point in verse 6 is by saying that if he did do this, his tongue speaking would need to be accompanied by one of four different types of revelation. Okay? 
He said, if I came this way and I spoke in tongues, I'd have to give you some sort of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching for you to be edified. Now, those are four words that we've seen all throughout 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I'm already, we've already seen them. We've already defined them. And while we could look at each one of them again, we're not going to do that this morning. I think it'd be sufficient for us to consider that all of these four words have to do with God's revelation to men and women. Okay. If there is some relationship between these four words, I, I would suggest that the relationship is between the first and the third word and the second and the fourth in that list. Okay, and so you would combine together prophecy and revelation, and you would combine together knowledge and teaching. Uh, because primarily, uh, <clears throat> prophecy and revelation are related to, get to each other often in Scripture, and so are knowledge and teaching. More specifically, prophets give revelation. We talked about that. Prophets give revelation, new revelation from God to man, whereas teachers give or impart knowledge of revelation that has already been given by God. And so Paul's basic point here is that tongue speaking by itself won't edify them because it would be in a language other than their native tongue, Greek. Um, it, would, it would need to shed some light on God's revealed truth, revelation, in an understandable way in order to build others up in the assembly. And so what begins to happen with this leading question, in my opinion, is Paul's, Paul's beginning to introduce the second guiding value that we'll take the next two sermons to talk about as he uh, unfolds them in verses 14 through 25, where... Uh, He'll, he'll bring out the concept of the need for comprehension or understanding in the local church. The word that's used by the translators here is intelligibility. That is, when people come to church, they must understand what's going on and what's being said if they're going to be built up. And so I think with this leading question, Paul at least begins to introduce that concept and idea. Although the point that he is making is people need to understand you if they're going to be built up. That leads to verses 7 through 11 and Paul's second point here. Paul gives some supporting illustrations for that concept. And we can go pretty quickly through these. There are two categories of illustrations that he gives. He first talks in verses uh, 7 through 9 of illustrations about musical instruments, and then he gives some illustrations about different languages. So look down in your Bible at the first illustration, musical instruments, in verse 7. He says, that If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Verses 7 and 8 here, Paul appeals to three musical instruments, the flute, the harp, and the bugle. Uh, regarding these instruments, there's a great commentator uh, in this, this particular verse who helps us. And so I want to read to you just a statement he makes. His name is Gordon Fee. And Gordon Fee says this. He says, the analogy here is clear. Speaking in tongues in the community at worship 
uh, Paul is arguing, is like the harpist running fingers all over the strings, making musical sounds, but not playing a pleasing melody. So Paul is asking them to imagine the value of musical instruments giving uh, non-distinct or indistinct sounds, just random notes on strings or on a flute. What he's saying here is not only true about the harp, it's true of the flute and the bugle as well. If all you play are random notes and make noise with an instrument, then there will be no clear message communicated to those who hear you, whether they're simply trying to listen to you for enjoyment or, as the text says here with the, the bugle, if they're dependent on the music to communicate some sort of clear message to them about battle. In verse 9, Paul draws a lesson from those three illustrations, though, of musical instruments. And he says it specifically near, near the end of the verse. He says, when you gather in tongues, it's like doing that, playing musical instruments without any distinct sound. And near the end of the verse, he says, and you will be speaking into the air. That is, your speaking in your worship service, Corinthians, will be completely profitless. Your intelligible, unintelligible grunts or groans or whatever you're doing in your worship will go out into the atmosphere and will completely dissipate before anyone gains any value from it. Have you ever gone to sleep when you were visiting a city. I ask you to humor me on this illustration for a moment. I think I'll make the point I want to make uh, with this text. I remember when I lived in Dunbar, Wisconsin. Dunbar is so far out there. Okay, you're in the country. I mean, you never hear anything except like crickets, maybe chirping. And I remember visiting San Francisco for a conference, the city of San Francisco for a conference. I was right in the middle of the city. And uh, when I tried to go to sleep the first night, it did not go well. I thought for sure someone left the window open in the room, but I went around to all the windows and none of them were open. But in this high-rise hotel, all I heard the entire evening were trucks breaking and taking off, people laughing and screaming, screaming. I mean, there were times I sat up in bed, I'm like, ah, what's going on? We don't get this in Dunbar. Uh, there were sirens going off. I was shocked by all the horns and the honking. I mean, I think even in my sleep, I was trying to interpret all the sounds of the city. It was very interesting to me. By the time I was leaving San Francisco, though, it all blended together when I went to sleep, and it was actually almost enjoyable. You know, there are, there are some uh, places, you can, go on, you can go on YouTube, you get CDs, actually, they have the sounds of the city that you can listen to, to be soothing and relaxing. But for me, it, it, near the end of that time, it was just one continuous track that communicated nothing to me. This is how Paul viewed the tongue-speaking of the Corinthian assembly. Noise. Indistinguishable. Untranslatable noise that helped no one there. And so he gives these illustrations to help us see that. Then the second type of illustration he gives is in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, where he describes many languages. Look in your Bible at verse 10. There doubtless 
many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. Here in verses 10 and 11, Paul extends the conversation by using different languages to make a point about tongue speaking. And the point that he's making here is that every language in this world communicates meaning. Whether the language is uh, Hindi or German or French or Hungarian or uh, Coptic or Hungarian, I mean, you fill it in, Norwegian, people are able to communicate to each other in a language. But if someone is speaking French, for instance, and I don't know French, that person will be a foreigner to me. The word used here in the ESV for foreigner is the Greek word barbaros, which in some of the older translations is translated, they will be a barbarian to me. The idea is, if someone is in a foreign tongue and they're speaking to me and I don't know that language, as if all I hear is bar, 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 bar. That's just all I hear. I can't make anything out of it. And so Paul says this will result in two things in verse 11. If, if someone comes into your, your, your service and they can't understand what you're saying, the two results are uh, they will be a foreigner to you and you will be a foreigner to them. That, that, that means uh, you'll engage in no profit, profitful uh, conversation at all. And so speaking in tongues then is like a guest coming to church and everyone is speaking in a language that they cannot understand. It'd be like someone visiting us here today and everyone would be speaking in Hindi. And they're in the church for a little while and they're trying to figure it out. Like, what is going on here? I mean, I, th- I thought we're in Virginia Beach. I thought they'd be speaking English. That, that guest probably wouldn't be here for very long unless they speak Hindi. Then they think it's the best thing in the world. But imagine the guest leaving, you know, he's looking at all the signs. Are they written in English? I mean, what, what's going on here? It just would make no sense to them. They would feel like an outsider. And later on in the text, Paul will, will call the Corinthians to consider how an, how an outsider or an unbeliever that would come into your assembly and hear all of this stuff going on in a language they can't understand, how they would feel, how they would respond. And so uh, Paul suggests here through different illustrations that edification or upbuilding requires comprehension, requires intelligibility. That brings us to this conclusion, verses 12 and 13, Paul gives two concluding commands. First, they're to strive to excel in building up the church. Look in your Bible at verse 12. So, with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, here's the command, strive to excel in building up the church. Here Paul challenges the Corinthians to take advantage of the zeal that they have for gifts by striving for excellence in edification. In other words, the Corinthians were zealots for spiritual experiences and endowments from the Spirit of God, but they should seek to abound. Those, those words, strive to excel, I would translate something like, seek that you may abound in gifts that build others up. See, I think that there are many things that we, by default or by interest, seek to abound in, that we strive to abound in. But oftentimes, the the things that we strive to abound 
in are things that are either harmful to us, sometimes possibly even sinful to us, or they're things that are only temporal, they're only earthly, or we strive to abound in other things that might even be harmful to us. So we strive to excel in sports or conditioning, physical conditioning. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with these things, right? We, we should try to be physically fit as we are capable and able to be. But we arrange our schedules. We plan everything appropriately so that we might excel in the physical arena or at work. We desire to excel in the workplace. And again, this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? We should give people a good picture of Christ at the workplace, and we should work hard. But many times, I think believers will be consumed with advancing and getting promotions at work, and and then will arrange their lives in conjunction so that they might excel in the workplace. Oh, we strive to excel in something like vacationing, okay, or something else. We want the best vacation package or the be- the better thing. So, here Paul would have us ask, I believe, are you striving to excel at church? At church in the building up of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think it would be very good for us as we go to the communion this, this, this morning to ask ourselves one question. To ask ourselves, how, may church, how many church people can I have meaningful interactions with this week so that I might see them be built up in their relationship with the Lord. Lord, how many meaningful interactions with church people can you give me this week so that I might excel in the upbuilding of the church? Perhaps for you, maybe it's just normally, you know, one or two people that I meet with, I meet with throughout the week or that I even see from our church family throughout the course of the week, well, maybe God, if you pray this way, Lord, please give me meaningful interactions with church people so I might build them up. Maybe God will give you 10 this week. And then when you get, get 10, guess what? Guess what you pray? Lord, help me to reorient my life. Help me to rearrange some things and help me to have a priority to obey the command that you give here. Seek to abound in the building up of the church. And that should be a desire that drives young men as strong, as strongly, as the desire to excel in sports. Or that should be something that drives a hardworking workaholic man to say, you know what, there's something more important than advancing in the workplace, and it's helping people advance in my local assembly. And so by God's grace, I'll rearrange some things so that I can interact more with people in the the family. This command strikes me, and even as a pastor, it's like my full-time job, right? 
my full-time job is to be shepherding people. But when I read this, when I read this imperative, it causes me to leave discontent. And it's all week. It's caused me to pray. Lord, help me to excel in the building up of the body of Christ here. That leads to one last imperative in verse 13. One of the ways that the Corinthians could seek to abound in edification was by praying that they might learn to interpret tongues. Look in your Bible, verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray. This is the imperative. Should pray that he may interpret. Verse 13, I, in the SV, is starting a new paragraph. I wish it was connected to the one before it. That's how I see it. Verse 13 is a, is a conclusion and an application, a specific application to the Corinthians in a way they might strive to excel in the body. This is what you need to do. If you speak in tongues, don't just be content with that. Don't be content with this gift that might attract all this attention, but pray, earnestly pray to God that you might interpret. Why? I think all throughout here he's told us. Pray that you have the gift to interpret that, that into language that people can understand so that they might be built up. It seems to me that throughout here, the, uh, the strongest human reason for why we gather together week after week is for the building up the body of Christ, building up other members here in this assembly. And so Paul would have us uh, consider that here. Will you pray this week that God will use you to build others up? As we turn our attention to the Lord's table now, it's good to be reminded, I think, of the high priority that Paul puts on building others up. Of course, the first step in edifying others is making sure that you are where you should be spiritually with the Lord. First, in your relationship to Christ, are you walking in obedience to the Lord? But then if we seek to, if we're we're really longing to edify other people, I think we should also consider at the Lord's table, where are you relationally with other people in this assembly? And if there's someone in this assembly that you cannot love or cannot forgive, I wonder if Paul's imperative would cause you to question whether or not you're committed to building them up. And so as we go to the Lord in prayer here, I'll give you just a a brief second to go to the Lord, take a moment, silent meditation, to evaluate yourself, your relationships, and your commitment to excel in building others up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come before you this morning, uh, we are so grateful and thankful to be able to celebrate the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Lord, perhaps there are some here who have either intentionally or unintentionally insulated themselves from the community at Colonial. Lord, I pray that as we approach the Lord's table this morning that you would give them the grace to be able to forgive and to love. Lord, I pray that you give all of us the grace to be able to evaluate our lives and evaluate our priorities and our commitments. Lord, these imperatives don't say 
that we should seek to excel in many of the things we are seeking. Lord, we do want to represent Christ in all the pursuits and the passions and the talents that you've given to us, Lord, but help us not to miss the command here. Lord, help us to excel as an individual in building others up in this assembly. Lord, this will take a work of your spirit in our assembly. You will need to move in your own way for your own glory. Lord, all we can do is proclaim the text of Scripture and pray that your spirit would make Colonial Baptist Church unique or different. Lord, we pray that you would do this and that you would do this for the sovereign pleasure of your Son. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his work on our behalf. We pray, Lord, as we go now to the Lord's table, that you would allow us to reflect and to regain our sense of appreciation for who Christ is. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.